Good morning. So it's a new season for all of us, huh? We moved back at the end of July, and so we're beginning this new season, and here we are the first Sunday of a new season at Living Stones. Speaking of a new season, how about that game last night? <laughs> no, listen, it's okay because I have very close friends and family members who are Michigan fans, and, and we didn't talk to each other yesterday, but today I'm just fine, so... I'm excited to be back in South Bend. We're excited to be a part of ministry here at Living Stones and in the city. Um, and I, I guess I would just call it like a perk that I'm a big Irish fan and, and get to be in this city. Um, I, but it is, it is a big deal to me. I, I, I greet people I barely know with Go Irish. If I was allowed to, I'd do the blessing at the end of every week. <laughs> we took our kids to uh, Rudy at the stadium last week. Got to watch that inside the stadium. So I watch Rudy every year. It's like a tradition that I have. And, and, and just in the last couple of years, my boys have started watching with me. Otherwise, it's just something I do where I cry in my living room uh, <laughs> by myself. Um, but so it struck me this week as, I was, as we went and saw the movie and then I was thinking about it, that I love how much... Well, first of all, have you seen Rudy? Okay, good. Otherwise, this would make no sense. I love how much Rudy loves his coach. Um, you know, he, he really respects and almost idolizes Coach Parsegian. And you, you see it from the very opening scenes of the movie. And, and there's almost this sense that as much as he wants to play for Notre Dame, he wants to play uh, for Coach Parsegian. And you, you get, you just, it, his love for that coach just overflows every time He's around him, and every time he, he, he gets to talk to him. But this, so usually I cry at the places where everybody cries, and usually I get excited at the places everybody gets excited. But this other scene stuck out to me this week. So you, you remember the scene where his friend is getting ready to go to law school in Miami, and he comes up to Rudy's dorm room, and that's when Rudy has found out that Ara just retired. Do you remember that scene? So he comes in, and, and, and Rudy is super sad, and he, what's wrong? And he says that Ara has retired. This guy that he would run through a brick wall, this guy that he'd follow him anywhere, Ara has quit. Ara is gone. And his friend says immediately, right, you remember, he's like, well, who'd they get to replace him? Who's going to replace your leader? And do you remember Rudy's face when he said Dan Devine from the Green Bay Packers? Sort of like... Dan Devine, replacing Ara. You know, I think they could have hired the ghost of Newt Rockney himself. <laughs> and Rudy still would have made that not impressed face because his guy was gone. Well, I feel a little bit like I'm stepping into Ara's shoes. And uh, I am not Dan Devine. <laughs> Uh, but I feel a little bit like I'm stepping into the place where Ara has been standing for the last 20 years. That Sam left an indelible mark on this church and on the lives of the people in this room, that's undeniable. And I think you should know that it's actually a pretty rare thing to get to celebrate the completion of a ministry uh, like you all have gotten to do over the last month. That's actually extraordinarily rare. Um, all too often, you know, pastors leave in very different kinds of circumstances. Um, 
There's no sense of delight in remembering the work that God has done in the midst of the community over, over the years. Um, and the stories that I've, that I've seen and the way that I've seen Sam celebrated over the last month, that's not something that's, that's particularly common. And so I, I just want to say that I hope you know that that's a, that that's a, a really big deal, that's a really good thing. Um, because there's nothing more def- deflating to me to, than to hear of or to experience a church where the pastor can't wait to leave or the people can't wait for the pastor to leave. But that's not the story of this church. You know, I've known Sam for a few years, and I've come to know him as a guy who seriously desired to align both his life and his ministry with God's heart. Um, and I think that's reflected here at Livingstones. So what do you say... This is, the, this is the only thing, this is the first thing I came up with was the title for this week. <laughs> so what do you say, right, on a day like today? Now what? Uh, well, the, the text that I want to read just to kind of hold out in front of us uh, this morning came to me uh, as I just asked myself this question over and over and over again. Now what? And that's uh, this text from the very beginning of Philippians Uh, Paul writes to the church in Philippi, and he has this to say to them in verses 3 through 6. I'm going to read it, but I think it's up on the screen. Paul is writing from prison, but he writes to them this, I thank God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion in Christ Jesus. Now what? That's what. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion in Christ Jesus. I really think this is the most important thing we could hear today. Because what Paul wanted to hear, the church in Philippi to hear, I think is what, if I could say, is what God would want us to hear And that is this, that A, God is doing work in and through us right here. And B, that that work is well known and is an encouragement to people who are not in this community. And C, that that work is going to continue. I think it's important because the temptation right now, because Sam has left, is going to be to try to figure out who's going to replace Sam. Okay, Sam's gone. Who's going to take his place? I get that question. I understand that question. Frankly, I ask that question. But it's not the right one. It's not the right question because Sam's replacement isn't the answer. The same way Sam wasn't the answer over the last 22 years. These words of Paul point us in the right direction. I want to think about that. First, God is doing a work in and through this church. God is doing that work. Now, God does that work through ordinary folks through people who stand up and preach, people who serve in children's ministry, people who volunteer in the community. God does the work through ordinary folks like you and I. God does that work for sure, but we can't forget that it's God doing it. From what I gather, I haven't been a part of this community over the last 10, 15 years, but from what I gather, if you're sitting in the room today, you're sitting in the midst of a community in and through whom God has done some pretty amazing things. The story of this church, the story of this church's transformation, 
the story of this church's presence and impact in the neighborhood, this church's capacity for compassion and mercy is honestly a work of God. Amen? Now, that's led by pastors like Sam and elders and staff, to be sure. But if God's not in the work, it's probably not worth doing. And it also probably didn't happen unless God is doing it. So that's the first thing I want us to remember this morning out of this passage from Philippians. It's that God is doing something in and through this place. The second thing, that that work that God is doing here is an encouragement and a witness to the gospel even outside this community. And I hope this is encouraging because what I, what I mean to say is that churches always get a reputation in their neighborhood. The churches get a reputation in their city or their community. Um, you know, oh yeah, such and such church, that's where the preaching's pretty good. Or, uh, you know, First Church of the Holy Sound System, they've got good music. <laughs> well, that church over there has good coffee and they give you a gift card if you show up to visit. So, you know, you go once a month and you just... Can I tell you what I hear people say about this church? This is a church that genuinely cares about its neighborhood and their neighbors. This is a place where we found healing after an incredibly painful season of life. This is a place that gets it, and what they mean by that is that this is a place where the gospel's lived out in a really whole way. I would say my perception is this is a very healthy and whole church and by that, I mean because this is a place where folks feel free and safe to talk about the ways they still need Jesus to put them back together again. And that's what makes us healthy and whole, is that we're able to say we're broken. As somebody who spent the last few years traveling around working with churches that are seeking to work out what it means to be God's people, I find myself, like Paul, saying, thank God for places like Livingstone's. I'm just thankful a place like this exists because it's the kind of place I point to and it's the kind of place I point people to who are ready to give up on church. I don't know if you know this, but, you know, the church isn't super popular these days. We're kind of messing it up on the national stage. But when I'm tempted to throw in a towel and say, you know what, forget it. It's not worth the time and the passion and the energy that it takes. I remember that there are churches like Living Stones Churches who opted not to build the big altar to themselves out by the highway and instead chose the simple, small, Jesus-shaped life in a community. Because there are churches like Living Stones who chose to do the ordinary thing over the flashy thing, who chose to locate themselves in the midst of people's pain and suffering instead of cozying up next to people's glory, because that is true, the gospel of God's redemption in Jesus is being lived out in real places, in real time, in the midst of people's real lives. Now, it fits and starts. I get it. Like, no community is perfect. We're not going to be doing everything perfectly. But I can tell you that it's a qualitatively different experience to be a part of the church that's made the kind of intentional choices that you all have made over the last 10 plus years. Like Paul, I find myself saying, thank God for you, for your part in the gospel from the first day until now. I am personally excited to be a part of Living Stones in this season because it's a place, personally, I, I see a lot in the world that we, we fail to preach the whole gospel to the whole world. 
this, this thread came across on Twitter this week where somebody was talking about the ways that we truncate the gospel. And I love that word truncate because it means to lop the top off something. And so you think about truncating the gospel, you think about guillotining the gospel, cutting its head off. But Jesus is the head. And I think if we're going to truncate the gospel, we lose Jesus in the midst of it. This is a place that I am confident is not trying to do any of that, not trying to reduce it or abstract it. But here I get the sense that if the whole gospel doesn't make sense, like down in the dirt in Don Moyer Avenue, then it doesn't make sense. And that I'm really excited about, being a part of a community that's committed to that. God's doing a work, and it's an encouragement to everyone who knows about it. And Paul says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work will carry it on to completion. That means the work that God is doing and has been doing isn't over. It's still happening. It's still going to happen. It's not done just because Sam retired. Certainly it's a new chapter and it's a new season, but the work that God has been doing will continue, and that's what I'm excited about. I'm, I'm excited about being able to at least lend my part to the community that God is building here, the amazing work that God has been doing. So that's the first thing I wanted to say this morning. I only have like eight or ten more things to, to go. <laughs> Just kidding. Just one more thing. <clears throat> By way of sort of setting the stage of where I think we should be headed over the next month or so, um, the, the other thing, it's kind of a shift. So let's hold Philippians in our in our hearts, but then I want to make a little shift here, and, and that is to say this, that much of the Christian life, and I think we're going to experience this a lot together, that much of the Christian life and a lot of what it means to, the, to be the church is learning how to, be, to follow God or to be faithful to God in the in-between. That life is, uh, for the most part, a series of beginnings and endings and beginnings and endings and beginnings and endings. And the Christian experience is usually right in between those things. That's always been the story of God's people. I think about, like, think about the story of the Exodus, where God's people have been slaves in Egypt for 400 plus years, and God has promised them a promised land. So they're set free, and where do they, they go in between slavery and the promised land? And for the entire Exodus journey, is that in-between time. The church itself, we live in between Jesus going back to the Father and Jesus returning to make everything right and good and true again. I have a friend that says that the Christian life is like Holy Saturday. We live in between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. We know the end of the story, but we're kind of living in that tension of the in-between. And so that means that, that the Christian life is full of tension, of that in-between, but it's also kind of transition. It's always on the way to somewhere else. It's a movement. Sometimes people call it a pilgrimage. We find lots of examples throughout Scripture of these transitions, these endings and beginnings and the in-between time. And that's helpful because the space we are in is about as tangible of an in-between time as we can get. For the next month or so, what I want us to do is to think about different moments in the story of Israel in the Old Testament. 
because their entire experience was lived in between. So I think we can learn a lot from them. What does it mean to be God's people in transition between some kind of ending and whatever the new beginning looks like? What does it mean to be God's people in that space? And frankly, we're going to look at Israel as kind of what not to do. For the next three weeks, we'll look at ways that they pivot when they get nervous or afraid. And we'll ask ourselves, what would that look like if we did that and how do we avoid it? And then uh, four weeks, one month from today, we're going to think, okay, well, if that's not what we should do, what does it mean to be faithful in the in-between time? In that moment of transition, what does that look like? So that's kind of where we're headed. But setting the stage for that, I want to say something and remind us of something that I promise at face value could seem a bit like a cliché. But I'm hopeful that we can resist letting it turn into a cliché and really think about what we're saying when we say it. So here it is. God is with us in the in-between. God's with us in the in-between. You see what I mean? That could, that could come across like a cliche, like, mm. but I, let's resist that and think, whoa, God is with us in the in-between. Here's what I want to, I want to back up and think again about this Exodus moment. Think about the fact that if, if for 420 years your people had been slaves in Egypt, which is, I think, longer than the U.S. has been a country, right? So, there is no person who has any memory of a person who didn't know anything other than being slaves in Egypt. Everyone in Israel, hundreds of thousands of people, all they knew was slavery in Egypt. But then they watch all those plagues happen, and they watch Pharaoh freak out and say to Moses, okay, get out of here. And Moses says, okay, God is leading us to a, a, a new home. He has prepared this new home for us. So they come out of Egypt and they walk where? Immediately in the front door of their new home? No. Where do they go? A desert. A wilderness. You talk about in between. You talk about something that's going to feel pretty uh, full of tension and uncertainty. And then all of a sudden, so here's the other thing. We think about, I think about Moses like he's this paragon of the Old Testament. But in this moment, at the very beginning of the Exodus, that's like the first time these folks have ever seen him. You know, he'd been gone for a long time because he had to run and hide because the last time these Israelites had seen him, he killed a dude. And he didn't grow up in all of Israel's, like, play. he grew up in Pharaoh's house. So now this guy who grew up in Pharaoh's house, who killed a guy, who ran away and came back, he's the one leading them out there. You got to imagine that these hundreds of thousands of Israelites are like, uh, excuse me? <laughs> they get out there in the desert and they're wandering around. In fact, the Bible talks about how God asked Moses to like get them wandering so that Pharaoh would think they were lost. Well, guess what? All those Israelites would have been pretty lost. They don't know where they are. You got to imagine that they are like us looking around at each other and being like, now what? Like that little shrug emoji guy? What do we do now? But here's, this is, this is cool to me, and it, and it passes so quickly in Exodus 13, but I want to read this to you. See if you can catch this. 
In Exodus 13, verses 20 through 22, it says, After leaving Succoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. God was with them in the in-between, and it never left. That's cool. Think about the disciples. Jesus has called these 12 disciples, and I want to, we'll probably talk about this some other time, but all these disciples that Jesus would have called would have been passed over again and again and again for for a place in like the religious community because of the jobs that they had. They had multiple times, and people had looked at them and be like, you know what, they're not good enough for leading in the religious community. I love that Jesus chooses people like that to lead the religious community that he's starting. So Jesus calls all these disciples, and he pulled them from like the religious margin to the center, and they were doing serious ministry. Jesus had said things like, hey, someday you're going to do greater things than I've done. But then you have the whole story of the arrest and the trial and the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection. They've spent some time with Jesus, but now Jesus is starting to say things like, he's going to leave again. And at the very end of Matthew, we get this very famous passage that we often call the Great Commission. But I'm, I want to read it to us today for a different reason. Because Jesus is about to leave the disciples. And they're going to be in this very weird place where their leader has left. Hmm. That's autobiographical for us at the moment. Their leader is going to leave, but Jesus says this to them. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So that's a tall order for them when Jesus is standing right next to them, but he's just about to go, except that he says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. What I love about this is that in both of these cases, God, on purpose, pulls his people out into the tension of being in between. In the Exodus and these disciples, like God pushes people into that, in that place on purpose. And the first thing he does is to remind them that he's with them. It's almost as if God pushes us into seasons of transition so that we can be reminded that he has not left us and that he hasn't forsaken us. The first thing God does is to remind people that they are not alone. You might be in transition, but you aren't alone. You might have all kinds of doubts and uncertainties and anxieties and unanswered questions and fears, but you are not alone because I am with you. See, I think that's good news, that God is with his people in the in-between time, which is good because it's precisely in the in-between times when we're prone to forget that. It's guaranteed. Transition uh, in between is guaranteed, I think, to make us wonder if God has forgotten us or abandoned us or if God was even there to begin with. I know that's true for me. 
we are in the midst of, as a family, a pretty serious season of transition. And if I'm being honest, the last six months has been this constant battle with believing that God is with me, that God is guiding, that God's presence has never left. It's a pretty serious battle. And I would never have told you that, but what I do is, it's not that I would say I don't believe God is with me. What I do is belittle that notion. I downplay it. Sure, God's with me, but what I really need is a job. Sure, God's with me, but what I really need is a way out of this situation. I get God's with me, but what I really need, do do you hear it? The experience of transition or the tension of being in between something allows me to sort of disregard what were pretty significant things in the story of God's people, to minimize it. So I guess that's what I would ask. If it's true that God is with you and God is with us, how do you respond when you hear that? Is there a check in your spirit about whether or not that feels like, eh, no big deal? But I think that we should pay attention to the fact that it's the first thing God says. It's the first thing God does, is to push his people into that tension and then say, but I'm with you. That maybe there's something God wants to do in us that he can't do unless we're pushed out into that space. I want you to think about it this way. You know, when you're reading your Bible, and like all of you, I like to start every day in the book of Malachi, Um, But you know, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. And the interesting thing is that, like, I can finish Malachi and just start in Matthew, like, right away. But you, you may know this. This little page represents 400 years of silence. We've had the prophets, and then nothing. Now what? It's interesting to me, though, that the first story of Matthew... We find out that Mary is pregnant, and, and, but the story in Matthew is about Joseph. And Joseph is going to divorce her, right, because they're engaged to be married. They're in the relational in-between time. Uh, and, uh, you know, in that time, in that community, uh, being pregnant in the in-between time was not okay. So it's a serious problem. So it pushes Joseph into this moment that would have been very much like the whole experience of Israel, like, now what do I do? Serious problem. But Joseph falls asleep and he has a dream, and in the dream, God says to him, don't be afraid, because I got this. This baby's going to be called what? Do you remember what what God says in Matthew? The baby's going to be called what? Emmanuel, which means what? the very first story we have of Jesus is the reminder that God has never left us and that God would take on our form to be with us. It seems like that's seriously good news. It seems like that's not something to take for granted. From the very first story God wants us to understand that in Jesus, we experience the fullest expression of God with us there is. 
the light of the world, the one that leads us out of captivity into the full promises of God, the one that's making everything right and good and beautiful and true again. But the first thing that God wants us to know about him is that he's God with us. We are an in-between people, and we're experiencing a significant in-between time. And in all the ways that we might experience that, God says, Living Stones, I'm with you. That's good news, eh? And so we can finish this morning where we began, recognizing, yes, we're in between. There is nothing we can do about that. And also, there is nothing that we can do to figure out the end before we get there. We're just in the in-between. But there's no need to be afraid, because the same thing that God told Joshua is true for us, that we're free to be strong and courageous because he's with us. So when we're tempted to say, well, now what? We just remember what Paul said. I thank God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, there is certainly nothing comfortable about being pushed into spaces where we do not know the end. There's a significant tension that comes with being in between. There's uncertainty and insecurity there. Um, and there's a temptation I know in my own heart, so I will speak for me, there's a temptation in my own heart to, to hear you say that you are with me, that to hear you say that you are with us, and to look for another answer, to look for more than that. Um, we would love clarity today. We would love to know the end, but we pray that you would help us to trust you in the process, in the journey of whatever you have for us in this season, God. We celebrate the way that you are at work in and through us, and that that doesn't stop, that that will continue, and that we can lean into the work you are doing in us, believing that you are continuing to work through us in the reshaping and uh, reforming of the world. We're grateful that you call us your people. It's your name that we pray. Amen.